How you doing, old boy? I don't know who to trust. I know what you mean, Blair. Trust's a tough thing to come by these days. Tell you what, why don't you just trust in the Lord? listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, everybody, and welcome to, can you believe it, episode nine of The Fear of God podcast. This is a podcast where two college chums discuss two seemingly very disparate topics, that of Christianity and the intersection of it and subjects of faith and the horror genre, be it horror movies. Occasionally we'll touch on some actual horror prose and other other forms in which the horror genre might manifest itself. I am Nathan Rouse, and typically I would have with me Reed Lackey, but he did watch The Thing in preparation for this week, and got so sick by it um, that he was really under the weather, could not record. I'm just kidding. Reed, are you there? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Reed. Welcome, Reed. <laughs> How are you doing, man? I'm, uh, I'm doing quite well. That is, assuming I am myself, which yes. is never a guarantee. Yes, that's, uh, that's, we'll, we'll, you're, you're brushing up, again. you're getting ahead of us here. Um, so yes, <laughs> you know, uh, Reed gave me reins to open our episode today, which I deeply appreciate. And today we're going to be continuing our uh, rather deep dive into the work and career of a Mr. John Carpenter, a gentleman who most of you would be ashamed of me to know I had very minimal Uh, experience or exposure to his work. Before we started this little profile series, um, we are in the month of October. Um, We have already discussed um, two weeks ago, The Fog, of which the content of which is rather self-explanatory. Last week, we did dive into that cornucopia of absurdity and fisticuffs, also known as They Live. (laughs) Um, This week, we will be touching on, we will be discussing The Thing, um, but kind of before we get there, Reed, you have ably taken our hand, walked us through the dark labyrinth of John Carpenter's career uh, up till now, and wanted to kind of kind of hand the torch off to you um, as you sort of take us a little deeper and see what is next. Um, I imagine up to now we're what in kind of the nineties ish. Although when when was the thing released? Oh uh, well, actually, and we'll we'll get to why we are talking about the thing this week. But the thing uh, was released in 1982. But they nice. live, okay. which we talked about last week, is 1988. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for the very early correction here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so take us away. Um, give us a little bit of a synopsis of where Carpenter next moves post. You know, they live post the 1980s. What 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 do we have to look forward to from him then? 
Well, for me, the 90s for Car- for John Carpenter really is is kind of him continually grasping at former successes, um, sort of retreading some familiar territory. Almost every film here sort of covers some similar territory. Following They Live, he did something that was a bit of an outlier again. It's, it's not a very good film. Uh, it's not terrible, but it's called Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And it's actually uh, something of a, a sci-fi noir comedy, uh, but, it, but it stars Chevy Chase, which, who feels very out of place. He feels very out of place in John Carpenter's work in general and even feels a little out of place in this film. Carpenter is always kind of reaching for something a little subtextual uh, in, in all of his films. And I think with Memoirs of Invisible Man, there was an effort uh, on his part to try to scratch at the surface of like, you know, what does it mean to be seen and, and what does it mean to, to move through life and feel invisible? But the film is a little bit of a mess tonally because it, it does have moments of comedy. It's also got a couple of moments of suspense, but none of them really flow fluidly from one piece to another. So it was a bit of a misfire. It's uh, it's one of his weaker entries. I mean, if you're a really big Chevy Chase fan uh, or are curious based on the premise and idea, then then okay. But otherwise, I would uh, I would suggest skipping it at the risk of being a bit a bit brash there well and 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 phyllis and reed so like for myself previous to our profile series on mr carpenter i had i had seen halloween but years and years ago then rewatched it for our fourth uh, installment next week but also watched for the first time the fog they live and the thing you know for you right i mean you for, for for listeners just catching us maybe in the last few weeks you know, I am sort of along for the ride a little bit. You are kind of our resident horror expert, but for you sure. diving into this material, I mean, you went the whole gamut, right? I watched 23 movies. Yes. <laughs> I watched 23 movies in to, uh, one day <laughs> to, to prepare for this, uh, for this profile. Now there were only three of them That's intense. Um, that I had never seen before. Uh, actually, no, that, that's, that's incorrect because I hadn't seen someone's watching me or Elvis before. But, um, but the big ones that I hadn't seen before, I hadn't seen Memoirs of an Invisible Man before. I hadn't seen Starman. <laughs> Again, you're just, the, the jokes are just, you know, attempting to make themselves right there. You know, <laughs> I hadn't Man. seen it. Exactly. And I also hadn't seen Dark Star, uh, which was his first okay. one. All of the rest of them I had seen at one point and just sort of rewatched sure. to refresh my memory and, and get sort of a new take on some of the ones that I had a particular memory about. But uh, and we'll talk about my least favorite one, actually, uh, this this week, because um, my least favorite one is from the 90s. But uh, but it's actually not Memoirs of Invisible Man. We'll uh, we'll get there soon. Following after Memoirs of Invisible Man, Carpenter returned to TV for uh, an anthology horror film. Uh, for those of you who, many of you are going to know what I mean by anthology horror film. It just means that rather than one singular narrative that carries all the way through the runtime of the film, um, there's sort of a framing device, and then you have three to five separate individual self-contained stories that emerge from this framing device. Tales from the Crypt did that. More recently, films like VHS or, um, or Southbound uh, do the same thing. So, uh, Body Bags is a good installment for anthology films. Uh, if you like anthology horror films, it's a pretty good one. And I think Shout Factory just recently released it to Blu-ray. And so that was a feature length entry, but it was made for TV. It was made for TV, uh, actually made okay. for Showtime. Yeah. So, and, and it features three self-contained stories, two of which were directed by Carpenter, who also directed the framing device. And then the third one directed by Toby Hooper. Now, I'll be honest with you that of the three films, the best one of the three 
is actually the one that Hooper directed. But the other two are still very good. Um, it's, it's a fun little, it's a fun little entry featuring, uh, some cameos by Wes Craven, uh, horror icon Roger Corman, uh, and also Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill as the lead of one of the, uh, one of the features. Um, so after Body Bags, uh, we come to unquestionably Carpenter's best film of the nineties and, uh, probably his last really great film. Uh, and that's in the mouth of madness, which we touched on a little bit last week. Um, as I'd said, when we talked about they live, if there was going to be, you know, if they live wasn't the one that we covered, probably the next one that I would have wanted to talk about is in the mouth of madness. It's, um, a very effective horror film. It's got a lot of the things we've come to recognize of Carpenter's trademarks in it. Um, stars Sam Neill and it's, it's gruesome. It's grisly. It's a little bit of a, a tribute to horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. Um, and, uh, it along with The Thing and Prince of Darkness comprises a kind of a thematic trilogy, um, that fans of Carpenter's work are, are very familiar with, um, what he calls his Apocalypse trilogy, where it's basically dealing with kind of end of the world scenarios in various degrees. And uh, In the Mouth of Madness is a very effective film. It's it's a really good horror film. If you're a fan of horror, and especially if you're a fan of John Carpenter and haven't seen In the Mouth of Madness, you need to see it. It's it's very, very good. And yet you recommended They Live. No, I wanted to talk about They Live because it's amazing <laughs> and it's awesome. That's that's why I wanted to talk about it's They a, Live. It's a, it's a swift triple kick to the gonads. Absolutely. <laughs> For five and a half minutes. Um <laughs> So, um, so Nathan, you just, uh, go, you go get some more bubble gum and I'll tell you about the next film. Um, so after, after In the Mouth of Madness, he, um, kind of does a similar, uh, so, so here's the thing about his next film. His next film was Village of the Damned, um, which has a, a bit of a sad note on it. It was the last feature film that Christopher Reeve finished before his tragic accident. Yeah. But, uh, Village of the Damned is a good movie. I, I like it. It's an effective suspense thriller. But it's interesting because, like The Thing, Village of the Damned is a remake of a 50s horror film. But, unlike The Thing, uh, Carpenter feels a bit restrained in Village of the Damned. It, all, it feels a bit like he's holding back some from dealing with some of the themes that he, that he, you feel like the film wants to explore. And I don't know if that's just because Carpenter was getting a bit older at that point. I don't know if it was a little bit of, of fallout or nervousness from the thing. I'm not sure because Village of the Damned is still a, a, a pretty good suspense thriller. I don't know that I would go so far as to say it's a good horror film. Um, but it's a pretty good suspense thriller and, uh, features Christopher Reeve, Kirstie Alley, a couple of other known performers at the time and some, some carpenter staples as well. But, but overall, it's just sort of a middling entry. It's, it's worth a viewing if you're interested, but, um, but not something, if you're not that interested, it's not something that you should necessarily need to seek out. But then we get to his one and only direct sequel to any film he ever made. Following, um, Village of the Damned, he made Escape from LA. Now, as you remember, as I had called last week Escape from New York the quintessential John Carpenter film. Like that is a, that is an iconic entry in his filmography. Escape from LA was largely driven, its creation was largely driven by Kurt Russell, who actually gets a co-writing credit on, on the film. And Escape from LA is, it's so interesting because Carpenter thinks it's better than Escape from New York. He said that multiple times. Uh, I completely disagree. I think that Escape from L.A. takes all of the elements from Escape from New York, retreads them, and in some ways makes them a little silly. It features, I kid you not, 
a basketball death match. Nice. I kid you not. Nice. And uh, which, by the way, if you do watch that film, Kurt Russell performed all of those shots himself without trick photography, including one where he chucks the basketball from all the way across the court and lands it. And and it wasn't a trick. He he actually made the shot. But it features that. It also features Kurt Russell uh, learning how to surf as he has to surf out of a canyon to get you know, of course. onto the bad guy. Um, it features some pretty bad special effects. It's, it, it's just a little bit silly in places and that hinders some of its impact, I think. But I will say this, it does have a genuinely strong ending. It's got a, it, it makes, I won't spoil it in case people want to see it. Um, but it does have a surprising and, and deliberately very strong choice for its ending that I liked a lot. And I, I found out in the trivia for it that Kurt Russell actually wrote the entire ending, that the ending was largely what he wanted to do with the story. And so for that, it might be worth you checking learn, out. You learn he was dead the whole time? Is that it? Oh, man, you've seen it. Oh, no, that's uh, that's actually yeah. not the that's actually not the case. But, um, spoiler, spoiler alert. But, uh, but, you know, other than that, it's, it's missable in, in my opinion. Now, one thing that I want to say before we get to our final film is it's interesting that, that in the 90s, Halloween was released in 1978. So in 1998, Jamie Lee Curtis had the idea, hey, let's do a sequel to Halloween, a, a, you know, another direct sequel to Halloween, but returning to the character of Laurie Strode. Let's, let's get her back in and catch up with her. You said this is 98? 98, yeah. And let's catch up with her 20 years later. She wanted Carpenter to come and direct the film. So uh, she's like, hey, let's come up with a script. You come direct the movie. And Carpenter, it's kind of an interesting choice. I don't want to cast too much judgment here because it's a little tricky. Carpenter got uh, kind of tricked out of a lot of the royalties and a lot of the financial success of the original Halloween. So when he was approached with this idea, um, he said he would do it, but he would only do it for a director's fee of $10 million, which was a lot of money. Um, I don't know about you. <laughs> I ain't got $10 million. So, um, but of course he was, you know, the producer of the film kind of, kind of laughed at that and the arrangement didn't happen. Carpenter wouldn't budge. And, uh, and so, so that didn't happen. The film did happen though. And actually, as, as probably we'll mention next week more in depth, um, it's my favorite of all of the Halloween sequels, uh, even without Carpenter's involvement. But, you know, the film was made. It didn't, it didn't have Carpenter in it. But the next year, Carpenter made a film called Vampires. Now, Vampires seems like from the premise that it would, that it would have Carpenter written all over it. It's kind of a blend of Western and horror, which we know he's had success with in the past. And, uh, it, it's kind of a rough, gritty, more rural kind of Western vampire story. But, uh, it just suffers because it's got a very bad script. And it, it's Carpenter didn't Did he like write the it? script. No. Oh, okay. uh -uh. Um, and it also, for my opinion, maybe other people wouldn't be bothered by this, but it has a pretty consistently and uh, disarmingly lowbrow tone, like lots of vulgar jokes in odd places. And so uh, over, it's my least favorite of his films. Uh, it's not unwatchable, but um, it is my least favorite in all of, in, in all of his work. Um, stars James Wood, who, who does give a pretty good performance, um, but it's, it's just not enough. I would, I, I personally would say that's for completists only and probably should be the last one on your list. Did you, well, see, let me, all right, well, let me ask you this. You just said that. So, like, did you, now this is, this is like nerd confession time. Did you watch all of the Carpenter movies by chronological release date? 
No, I started to, and then uh, availability of certain films uh, ah. took precedent. But um, but you attempted it, and that's I did. something for your level of nerddom. I watched the first ten of them in order, and then after that I had to just wait for you know the availability of the other films to, to come in. I will say that the, you know, probably the biggest reason, well, there's two major reasons that we're talking about the thing. Number one is it's, it's an iconic horror masterpiece. And there's so much about the making of it, uh, within the film itself and about its place in Carpenter's career that warrants a discussion. Um, but, but also there's really not a film from the nineties other than in the mouth of madness that's, that's really worth much discussion, in my opinion. And it saddens me to say that because I love John Carpenter, but it's just weak entry after, weak entry in the 90s. It was kind of a lackluster decade uh, for him. Um, and you hadn't seen any of these films, right? You hadn't seen any of the ones nope. I mentioned. Um, nope. But you have Why seen... So <laughs> <laughs> um, but you have seen our main film. And I want to know your thoughts yeah, about that. So, so yes, you were, you were uh, ramping us up to talk about... Um, see, I'm going to reveal my English ignorance here. What, what part of speech is the word, the thing? Thing? Things just a noun, All right? I don't think it's. I don't think it would be considered a pronoun. Uh, it, it, no. it's simply, well, I guess technically a it's a proper noun in this in this instance. Yeah, it is the thing. It's not a thing. It is. It's, it's the thing. Indeed. I would like to say uh, for any of our for any of our listeners out there, um, you know, you can call it a drinking game if you want, but you know, we're not going to encourage drinking game. I want to. I want you to count how many times Nathan or I accidentally say, "Here's the thing," because that's a common phrase for both of us, and I'm so curious to see how we're going to avoid it or not in this particular episode where we're talking about a film called The Thing. So, uh, in in the spirit of that, Reed, um, here's the thing. <laughs> um, what did what did you think when you saw it? I asked you not to watch a trailer for this one, and I asked you to just go into it. I did not watch it. the trailer. Yeah. So what do you think? Uh, so are we? We're moving to there. Are we? Do we have any background we need to discuss, or, or is it now? It's just reality. Well, we t we touched on it a little bit last week. I will say, actually, that's a good point. I will say that's that right, the, ET, um, the ET thing. Yeah, because uh, ET came out two weeks prior to the thing. And everybody was so enamored with extraterrestrial possibilities that when John Carpenter released the thing, the backlash is almost notorious in film world. Uh, many, many films over time have been ignored or dismissed at the time of their release and then later hailed as classics. Um, but few of them have suffered the level of derision that The Thing suffered when it was first released. I want to read you a quote that came from uh, a critic named Alan Spencer. And in his, in his review of The Thing, here's what he said. He said, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing smells and smells pretty bad. It has no pace, sloppy continuity, zero humor, bland characters on top of being totally devoid of either warmth or humanity. It's my contention that John Carpenter was never meant to direct a science fiction horror film. He, here's some of the things he'd be better suited to direct. Traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings. Wow. Um, that's just one of a multitude of very sort of mean spirited criticisms towards the thing when it came out. Roger Ebert called it a barf bag movie. Um, and I mean, and, and I mean, people hated this film and here's the thing that uh, there you go. Um, so, Drink. but uh, so what, what makes me so interested in this, this film, Carpenter has said that this is his favorite movie that he's ever made. And he's also said that he takes all of 
the failures of his films, uh, whether that be financial at the box office or critically, he takes them all pretty hard because obviously he's, he's put his heart into these movies. He wants sure. them to be good. So he takes the backlash a little hard, but he said nothing hit him as hard as the backlash for the thing. And he was stunned huh. at how angry people got at this film. He thought, I mean, he thought he was making a, a good movie. And I think he did make a good movie. I think he made a masterpiece. I, I will use that word many times when talking about the thing. What thing? Oh, that thing. Okay. Just, just so we're clear. <laughs> exactly. Uh, he was just so disappointed that it, you know, that it went the way it did with audiences and with critics. And uh, I think that it flavored largely the remainder of his career. Uh, that it was always sort of this shadow looming over him of, uh, he, he had made his first studio movie and it was a wonderful, excellent, iconic horror film, but it just was not received that way at the time. And, uh, you know, for better or worse, I think his, the rest of his career path was, was affected by that. I don't think it's too, it's too broad of a statement to say that everything following 1982 was in some way affected by the reactions to the thing. Well, and it's, it's funny you say that and we, yes, let's definitely dive into reactions. But before I get there, I had texted you the night I watched the thing and a, a, a thought that occurred to me at the end of it is were this made today, you know, in 2016 as, as it is even, you know, like, like take, take what you watch when you watch the thing and, and, if we transport it to release date 2016, within six months, we'd be hearing rumors of sequels, you know, and, and right. casting choices and, and, you know, creature design and that sort of thing. So I was really surprised, you know, I, I didn't know the backstory that you just outlined in terms of uh, audience reaction, critical reaction, that sort of thing. Um, it was just interesting to me to have just watched it and think it really surprises me that, that this never got redone, which you and I did talk on the phone the other day about the what was it about five years ago the follow-up that was actually a prequel right right but even that is pretty pretty divorced from its initial you know kind of impact yeah so so here's the thing um <laughs> that was on purpose so yeah like i other than halloween had not seen any of the other three movies and i wish i wish i had not had this association it would have it would have made the the viewing experience even more tense perhaps, but we haven't talked about this on the show before, but I was, and more or less am though, this most recent TV run really attempted to sour everything for me, but huge X-Files fan. Um, yeah. You know, the yeah. Ran from 94 to I think 02 or somewhere in there, 02, 03. And, um, and there is an episode called ice and I believe it's the first season that features some extremely iconic X-Files quotables but is the show's homage to the thing. Yeah. And I didn't, I did I had never seen the thing. I honestly didn't know the actual story. I just remembered from my X-Files affection that that episode was a direct, was, was their way of honoring that movie. And so the actual watching of the film, the thing, uh, you know, the, the whole Arctic science facility, questionable loyalties, paranoia, I was all prepared for that. And even, you know, I'm a little annoyed that I, that the experience was a little bit tarnished this way, but I mean, the minute you see the dog running through the snow, it's, it's a real beautiful yeah. image, but the guy shooting at it, I knew I was like, oh, okay, I know exactly what's happening right now, which I kind of wish hadn't been the case. I mean, indeed I had not watched a trailer, so I didn't know some of its more particular beats, but 
you know, was was fully prepared for the at least atmosphere that the movie does offer. Sure. That said, <laughs> once once I realized, okay, I know kind of what this movie is going to offer me. I was anticipating something more content-wise, something more like that X-Files episode, not thinking, well, in 1994, a TV budget was probably pretty minimal, so creature effects or you know, just special effects in general are going to be much more subdued, you know, much more muted. And so it was totally unprepared for, <laughs> uh, for the thing, you know? It just, kind <laughs> yeah. of, it just kind of lashes its nasty tongue around you and just 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 pulls you in you know and in fact i'm looking at my notes right now and it says just not the dog with three exclamation marks (laughs) um before i get there though you'll like this you'll like this little cross continuity carpenter continuity thing um at about the 10 minute mark kurt russell puts on sunglasses and i thought they live oh boy what is he seeing i uh I, I, I do. And and boy, that whole film would have gone so differently if the glasses could reveal, you know, who the yeah, who the thing was. You know, that's true. Um, they'd have they'd have saved themselves a lot of trouble. It's true. It's true. We wouldn't have had that very, very nerve wracking, tense blood test scene, but it, no. it sure would have uh, sped up the plot a lot. It'd be like, oh, it's this guy. Yeah. Okay. Movie here we over. go. Ten minutes. Just a uh, torch him. And you you had asked me the the night of, you and I were texting back and forth that I was watching it, and of course there's horrific images like the defibrillator scene, but which is unquestionably horrific. But honestly, man, that dog scene messed me up. Like I have a dog, but that's not even the quite the point. It's again, hearkening back to what I was saying about the X-Files stuff. I'm anticipating something more character driven, something more subdued in terms of effects. So I, I, I had no idea where it was going visually. Yeah. So the moment that dog does what it does and explodes into nastiness like for about five minutes during the course of that scene. And I, I will tell you, I didn't look away, Mm, which, mm -hmm. you know, props to me. Yeah. Kudos. But eyes bulging out of my head, slack jawed. Like I was watching it with a buddy and would just kind of look over him at like over at him and be like, what I, this is, this is awful. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the, the rest of the movie, follow suit but really because i had no idea what to expect the image of that dog bursting into whatever you would want to call it was such a jarring shift that i was totally unprepared for that you know uh you know maybe maybe a change of draws followed suit (laughs) yeah Uh, so yeah i mean that was that was sort of my my thoughts on the, the watching of the thing. You know what's interesting about that dog scene is so the 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 man who, nothing <laughs> the man who had done the special effects work. Um, his name oh gosh it's escaping me right now but uh, his name is Rob something I'm gonna look it up real quick but um, the man who had done the majority of the effects work for the thing was um, uh, one particular person oh Rob Botton Botton or Boten I'm not quite sure how to say his last name but. Um, he had done so much just really incredible work for this movie, but he had reached a point because of the intense workload that he was under uh, where he had been diagnosed with exhaustion and had to be hospitalized. And wow. so when they came, when it came time to do that, that dog scene, um, they had to call on Stan Winston 
to come in and oh, help with yep. some of those effects. So, you know, Stan Winston's a legend in the makeup and effects world. And um, right. so he actually did that dog scene. They were going to credit him for it, but at his request, which I thought was really noteworthy, at his request, he said, I don't want to take away from the work that Rob has done. So just credit him for it, and they gave him a special thanks in the credit. But that dog scene that you're referring to is is almost entirely Stan Winston's work, um, and it is super super effective. You also mentioned the defibrillator scene. That's that's something that I think of many many times when I'm thinking about the sort of the more grisly when you're at the doctor's office. Oh, don't touch me with that thing. <laughs> so, um, but uh, but also for me Clear. for me the the biggest scene. The, the most sort of tense laden is the blood test. The blood test is, yeah. I, I, I said to you, and I still think this, if I were to make, um, as I love to make lists, if I were to make a top 10 list of like my favorite or the most suspenseful scenes in any film, this blood test scene from the thing would likely be in my top 10. It is so nerve wracking as they're piece by piece trying to figure out which one of them is human and which one of them is not. And when it is revealed, uh, which one of them is not, which I won't spoil in case they say, here's the thing. (laughs) Yes. No, they don't. (laughs) And, um, when that's finally revealed, it is, uh, it it is pretty effective. It's, it it is in many ways a nasty little movie. Oh yeah. And, and I think one of the things I commend Carpenter for as a filmmaker, you know, he, he sort of backpedaled a little bit, even in the making of it, uh, wanting to sort of scale back some of what he was thinking about doing. Um, but I read somewhere that, that his editor, his, a man named Todd Ramsey, um, his editor said, you need, you need to really embrace the vision that you have for this movie. And he said, I loved this quote. He said, you have to embrace the darkness because that's where this movie is. It's in the dark. And I'm like, oh man, that, what a, what a perfect way to sum up what this kind of story is. There are some stories, uh, many of them we either have explored or will explore on this show. Uh, there are some stories that simply take place in, in the darkness. And, um, I think it's admirable for John Carpenter as a filmmaker to have really committed to that. I think that's partially, although I can't really speak for him, I think that's probably why he considers it his favorite film. And I think that's part of why it's such an important film in his filmography. Uh, even though, man, it just blows my mind. The power of public opinion, the fact that uh, so many people hated this film and that that impacted it. I mean, the studio, Universal Studios, parted ways with him because of the backlash of this of this film. And uh, it took him a while to sort of course correct and get back in, even though he consistently worked, to get back in the good graces of, of mainstream audiences. And now, uh, John Carpenter is unique in one particular way. There are a variety of, if you were to Google top 100 horror films, um, there are a, a, a wide array of lists, but the top 10 are pretty much the same. The top 10 are going to include your Psycho, they're going to include your Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shining, The Exorcist. Your top 10 is basically going to be the same. And in almost all of those top 10s, John Carpenter has the unique distinction of being the only director to have two films in what is almost universally considered the the 10 greatest horror films ever made, Halloween and The Thing. And it's so fascinating to me that The Thing is now so praised as a a masterpiece in the horror genre when at the time 
it, it couldn't have been more poorly received. Um, and I just, I just find that fascinating. I mean, come on. It's got Wilford Brimley. You know, really. you know who was supposed to play that? Was it was supposed to be it was supposed to be Donald Pleasance, who you'll know as Doctor Loomis from the Halloween movies, and shows up in a lot of Carpenter's other films. It was actually supposed to be Donald Pleasance, but his uh, schedule at the time wouldn't allow it, which is why Wilford Brimley had to had to be cast. And uh, I think he does a great job. I had I hadn't seen sure. him in much, and I forget the name of that TV show that he was on forever, but. Our house is that right? Our house, might yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think you might be right. Maybe, um, maybe. but uh, uh, listeners, don't quote us on that. I uh, know, but but chime in and correct us, please do. Um, but uh, but I mean, I hadn't seen Wilford Brimley in much, but I think he delivers such a fantastic performance here. Uh, the the levels that he brings with his character when he goes crazy in the control room and then trying to persuade uh, uh McCready to let him back into the into the main group oh. and then ugh, poor Gary <laughs> oh my gosh when he uh when he comes around that when uh, Blair comes around that corner boy it is uh oh is that the face that's scene? the face Ooh. scene good lord that's a nerve-wracking moment but you know Wolfer Brimley delivers a great performance but I think everybody here is doing really strong work I mean I really want to make like a talk to the hand joke there ugh. I just I can't quite get there. No, yeah, there's a reason for that. No, but uh, but I just I don't know. I, I before we dive into sort of some more thematic things, we've talked a couple of times uh, in this little profile series about uh, self awareness of filmmakers, and we've even touched on sort of the entitlement of the public. I mean, you and I spent at least a moment talking about sort of the uh, the the negative responses to Suicide Squad. And exactly what's going on there. I think we live in such an interesting era of, you know, movie making and movie watching where fan entitlement, I'm just going to say it, fan entitlement has gotten out of control. Like the, de- the degree to which people say like, oh, you, ha- you know, you have to service certain things in order for me to, you know, approve or validate your, you know, value as a storyteller, you know, we could spend a long diversion talking about, you know, the, the ridiculous backlash to Ghostbusters, which I haven't seen, but, um, you know, there's, we've talked about the fact that they're making comments about casting decisions for performances that they have yet to see and don't know. I can remember people making all kinds of comments akin to, you know, Brokeback Batman when Heath Ledger was cast as Joker. And he won an Oscar for it. Right. I think in, in many, many ways, and that's just one example, but I think in many ways, we as fans of movies have to learn how to be honest about our opinion and, and to, to be true to ourselves and to be honest about what we think and what we feel. But I do think we should probably try to scale back a little bit on this, this entitlement notion, the notion that we are somehow owed this thing from this property that Audiences at the time were very affectionate towards aliens and very affectionate towards sort of more optimistic views of the world. So Carpenter releases this bleak, dreary, apocalyptic nightmare and, you know, audiences just just were having none of it. And I don't know, there, there's probably some different nuances and elements to be explored there. But I think it's it's an interesting examination to take a step back and go, wait a minute, like 
Am I, am I acting too entitled to, to dismiss this element or that element? Let me try to engage with the filmmaker for what they're trying to do. And then, sure. absolutely, be honest. Like, if you don't like it, there are so many filmmakers that I've said, you know what, the bottom line is I just don't speak their language. They are doing things that right. a lot of people respond to. I don't respond very positively to it. I'm, I'm not in that camp that really gets what they're doing. And I'm fine with saying that, like, I'm fine with acknowledging that there's just certain things that connect with me and certain things that don't. But when a property comes out or when uh, a new film is about to be made and fans just take to the streets with signs and pitchforks, it's it's getting a little absurd, I think. I don't know if you agree with any of that, but no, not at all. I didn't think you did. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's I mean. Part of it is just internet culture. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, we, we are seeing the internet louder than it's ever been before in destructive ways. Yeah. And with the internet, the democratization of communication, I mean, anybody can share their opinion and everybody does. Right. Um, whether that, uh, hear this with the, with the kindness it's intended. I mean, whether that opinion is valid or not. Right. You know, there's so many occasions where it's like, it's like I, I don't speak about things medicinal because I'm not a doctor. You know, I'm not going to go rant and rave about what's vaccines and vaccination and things like that because I'm 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 just a guy out here trying to have a family and do right by my neighbors and the world around me. And I think fandom, which we use in, in the broad sense, like just the, the culture surrounding genre uh, pop culture, you use that word entitled, and and I don't even mean that disparagingly, but it but it just there's a degree to which you have to, well, you don't have to because no one is, but the, the proper form of consumption is, at least as far as art is concerned, and, and let's be honest, most of what we're talking about on here, whether it's skewed towards a particular genre or not, you know, we, we're, we're going to try to mine it and find the art in it, or at least what it might be trying to say, or at least what we as believers can find in it that we can take away from it as far as consumer culture goes, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, it's well, you know, and I, I hate to pick on the Snyder verse DCU stuff, but you know, it's, it's like the, the, the degree to which <laughs> referencing suicide squad from a couple of weeks ago, there's a petition to, to like dismantle rotten tomatoes. Yes. Which is absurd. Like this, this is just silly, which, yeah. Which, listen, I'm not even, I don't even want to deny someone their right to an opinion of a thing. I want to deny someone their right to be correct about every opinion they have of a thing. Yeah. Because that's, there's a big difference, you know? Like, I can say, well, I don't like X. I mean, they live. Perfect example. You know, I can come on here on our podcast and say, you know what? It just wasn't my cup of tea. Right. I think there might have been another, I think there might have been another context in which, it might be my cup of tea, but the first viewing, I'm just, I really didn't float my boat and probably it, I don't have a circumstance under which I might engage it again. It is what it is. You know, right. like, it, like we, we, we refuse to let that be the end of the conversation, you know, in terms of fandom and entitlement and things like that. And, and I know we're derailing a little bit, but I think that's an important conversation that's going to continue to come up because we are talking about genre material right you know right. and and there is such a specific bleed over like no one's crying about nicholas sparks adaptation getting it wrong <laughs> like for some reason those those things just don't happen 
they're just crying at it or crying because they spent their money on it. But, but, um, but you know, there's just something unique about fan culture, you know, genre culture that, that demands again, not Joyce, not just that their voice be heard, which, you know, okay, cool. Yeah. You've, you've stated your case, but that somehow it's all valid across the board, which just is patently untrue. Right. And that's not a dismissive comment. It's just, there are people who are better suited. Like, you know, I don't like everything the critics like. I don't like everything that fandom likes. But I respect most of the time. I respect certain critics. And just because they're on a more objective point of view than fandom on its soapbox doesn't mean they're wrong, you know? Right. I, I, wish, I wish there was a truism or I wish... I wish we could get back to the truth that a bad movie is just a bad movie and a good movie is just a good movie. Or the concern I have, and again, we're, we're going all over the place here, and so steer us back to shore in just a second, but what scares me in the pop culture realm is this notion that if it's not perfect, it's thus crap. Mm, yeah. I think that's a very, very precarious position. Right. You know, like... I mean, using the Ghostbusters example, like one, we could talk all day about the value necessarily in reviving that concept, but it, it, it happened and it happened with women in the lead roles. And, you know, like one, you talk about casting uproar, like who, goodness gracious, who cares? Sure, sure. Uh, but two, when it finally does come out, like the trailer, Oh, the worst reviewed trailer in history. Oh what gosh. a joke. That was dumb. What a joke. Yeah. Like, good lord, people. We we as a we as a race have grown far too entitled when when a trailer and its goodness or not goodness is is meriting, you know, national attention. Right. Anyway, we're 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 jumping all over the place there. Let's find find a way to bring this back. Re- I will. I will. I have well, I have two comments, and I think this will steer us back. So so the first one is here's the reason why, and and you'll rarely hear me give statements that are this devoid of nuance. Nathan is awesome. <laughs> um, there's a reason why that shut down Rotten Tomatoes petition is stupid. It's it's incredibly stupid. Uh, there's a reason why, and and something that I am so upset by in general. You and I are performing a podcast right here where we are putting our opinions out into the world. Um, if somebody else disagrees with us, we'll listen to you. We'll hear what you have to say. What I dislike about the idea of shut down Rotten Tomatoes is it is asking for a certain category of people to shut up. And it's asking for a certain, you know, brand of silencing to certain voices, which I find really offensive. Now, I don't find that particular petition offensive. I find it stupid. But I find the idea that somebody would say, well, you people just need to shut up. I cannot stand that idea. What I want, just as an individual person, is I want, okay, I want my voice. And you over there, the one who disagrees with me, I would like you to have your time to speak. And then when you and I have both had our time to speak, then we will have the opportunity to try to persuade the people that we're trying to persuade. And there's going to be some people who are just not going to listen. They're going to believe what they want to believe. There are other people who might be persuadable. But in general, I so passionately believe in the ability of someone to have a voice and the ability of someone to to speak out to something. And the the, the second component, um, although this is a bit of a stretch to steer us back to it, is one of the pervading elements of the thing is 
how once you get something stuck in your head, once you get an idea or a notion stuck in your head, then any evidence to the contrary is very difficult to accept. And paranoia just sort of begins to snowball. And yep. your idea is consistently perpetuated regardless of the empirical evidence at hand. Now, what the thing is dealing with, the thing is dealing very specifically with sort of the the uh, de-evolution of a functioning microcosmic society. So these people are confined. One of the trademarks of a lot of Carpenter's films is that he tells confined stories that take place in confined places. And uh, The Thing is one of the best examples of that. But it's also present in, you know, the the single town of Haddonfield, the, uh, the uh, compartmentalized New York in Escape from New York. Um, there's several other examples that I could go into. But in this, in this story, these people are trapped together and then they, they institute a threat into their midst. And what I think is so brilliant about this movie is there is a very real present danger among them, but almost the worst danger is how they as people begin to unravel in their, in their paranoia and in their, uh, just, just how they treat one another. Uh, I mean, they're about, they're about to kill each other. They're all just about to kill each other with a drop of a hat. And a couple of them do die basically by accidents, you know, where, where some of them were completely human and they're still, they're killed because of rash decisions on both sides. And one of the things that I think is, is a very real danger for people in general. And it happens socially. It happens politically. It, Definitely happens in religious circles. Good Lord, as much as I hate to admit it, being a follower of Jesus Christ, you can find fewer paranoid people in the world than, you know, devout Christians sometimes, just in terms of finding a threat under every single social and cultural norm. Um, you know, whether or not those threats are legitimate or valid, um, finding all kinds of, oh, look at the symbolism behind this, that, you know, the art design on this is actually symbolic of some Illuminati thing. And, and, and hear me that if you are kind of into that, what I said earlier still stands. I will give you your voice and I will give you your time. But I am so immediately skeptical of any sort of conspiratorial theory of, you know, that, that degree of panic and paranoia that happens. And I think the thing is a, is a great example in a small scale of what that kind of looks like when it's left unchecked. But isn't that, but isn't that fascinating, Reed? I mean, like, sometimes I wonder, it's like, you know, how, how matter of fact can you be about certain things? But your point about the, the religious institutions or, or, you know, the church, if you will, being a predominant home of paranoia, like, how can it be possible and, and, and there is no easy answer to this. I don't, you know, I don't mean to pretend that there is, but how can it be possible that the concept of welcoming the stranger is so pervasive yeah. in the New Testament? You know, uh, take, take the Good Samaritan story. Um, just, just, you know, the least of these. Um, whatever you do for them, you do for me. Like, these signposts of what it means to be a faithful person. Right. And, and we just don't care. Which feels too dismissive. I don't mean that to be so, but you know what I'm saying. Like, in in the face of pot stirring, fear inducement, we are so quick to abandon all graciousness and hospitality. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's, it's a constant. Like you poll 
poll 50 people who have either, you know, fallen away from or decided they want nothing to do with church. And I guarantee you 75% or more, it's because it, that they'll cite one of those things or they'll cite that as one of the reasons like, right. Well, and here, I'm not even trying to say there aren't, you know, we don't all have a grain of hypocrisy. I, I hope, I hope all will be all listening will be sensitive to the nuance with which I'm trying to convey that. But there is something troubling, you know, and, and, and in watching the thing that is, as I've sort of marinated on it and thought about, you know, the themes of it or what have you, that we could sort of borrow that notion. And, and <laughs> you and I have had conversations about how deep to go political on our, our podcast and, you know, but, but we are just, we are currently operating in a culture that is using, that is, that is putting forth the name of Jesus and using the shell of the church in defense of extreme exclusion, exclusionism, right? Right. Extreme exclusionism. And, and as we talked about with Cloverfield Lane, like I'm not saying be reckless and I don't think you would ever say that either, but right, right. But doggone, you know, there is, there is a death we are committing to ourselves as, as, as those seeking to live faithfully by being so extremely susceptible to paranoia and fear. Yeah. And, and I, I sort of get it, but I also think <laughs> not to get all preachy, but man, that if, if there is a, to me, to me, this is Nathan Rouse speaking this, receive this as from Nathan and not necessarily from the Lord. But if there is something that is repentance worthy in the church at large, it's that. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we can, we can talk about, you know, little, little issues here and there all day long. And I think there's, there's room for that conversation, but in terms of the umbrella of hospitality and graciousness, it doesn't exist. Right. Right. Um, in a, in a, in a, in a large scale sense, you know, you've got, you've got your faithful bodies here and there. And, you know, I'm not dismissing the good work that is being done, but it definitely isn't what we are known for. I, I agree because we're known for passing judgment and we're known for condemnation to a much greater degree than we're known for healing wounds and setting captives free and, and doing the work that, I believe, and I think you would agree with, that we've been more called and commissioned to to activate and to perform. And I think that part of it is, like, like the thing could be explored to an extreme degree with this metaphor, but that notion of they look like us, but they are not us is is very much in the thing. That's the main threat, is that, oh, yeah. you know, one has infiltrated us. It is not human. It is not one of us. And it looks and talks and acts exactly like us. And I mean, I see that so prominently in even some of the smaller circles that I run in socially and, and among my friends. Like that notion can sometimes rear its head, uh, where it's this idea of, you know, oh, well, you know, and we said it last week. And I'm not backpedaling on this that you should challenge and, uh, you should have the, the bravery and the courage to challenge what you're consuming on a regular basis, that you should not just, you know, wholeheartedly open your mouth wide and swallow whatever's being pushed and fed to you. But at the same time, don't go to the other extreme where there's no trust and there's no acceptance and there's no grace in engaging with other people um, because there's so, it's such a pervasive 
notion these days of, oh, well, they say this, but they really mean this, and it's really this, and they're liar, 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 liar. I mean, we're seeing, I'm not, I, I know we, we, we try to avoid overt political statements, but in many ways, we are seeing a nationwide version of the thing play out in our current political spectrum. Yeah. Um, where, yeah. Yeah. you know, the finger pointing yep. like they, they are evil and this is evil and, and, and it's getting exponentially worse. You know, we're sitting here recording in August. Who knows by the time this airs in October what it's going to be like. Right. Um, right. but, but this notion, I think it's a, it's a frightening, a frighteningly accurate parable of what people can do to one another when you introduce this sort of idea of a, of a falsehood and a threat in the middle of, of this small microcosmic kind of area, whether that be, you know, in the Arctic wilderness or on a national scale or even on a global scale. When you introduce this idea of there is a threat that looks like us, but it is not us and we must find it and weed it out. And I think that it takes a lot of courage. Well, and go a little further. We must kill it. We must kill it. Exactly. We must destroy it. And I think it takes a lot of courage to take a step back and say, this is, this is not how we're going to be. This is not who we are. We're going to be something other than this. And we're going to, again, even in the midst of challenging, even in the midst of saying, well, I don't know if I completely agree with that. Even in the midst of saying, I don't know if I totally buy that to have some degree of trust and acceptance and grace to say, okay, let's, let's meet somewhere in the midst here. Let's, let's go, uh, let's at least try to work towards some degree of reconciliation, which seems like uh, a, a word that is completely removed from our vocabulary these days, um, is this idea of reconciling and coming back together where we do stand on even ground. But instead, paranoia reigns free. <laughs> and uh, Well, and, you know, a, a, um, a scriptural principle that's just popping into my head, but is so potent and, and accurate or, or, or topical is... Do unto others. My gosh, you know, like, like, uh, how how would you? I feel like the if, if if people of faith actually operated from the position of treat others the way you actually would want to be treated. What a, <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. a game changer. Yeah, that, there's a reason it's called the golden rule. Absolutely, like that. That is that's the standard that we should all be striving towards. Is is how you want to be treated, or how I want to be treated is how I am going to treat you. Whether or not you have treated me completely fairly or completely rightly, how I would want to be treated is is the standard by which I engage with the world around me. And I think that's the only place that we can find the ability to rise above this sort of uh, epidemic of paranoia, epidemic of d disastrous dissolving that can happen in our interior structure. Well, I know that uh, this as, you know, as is often the case with us recently, uh, this is a heavy conversation and full of lots of possibilities for opinions. Uh, before we close down, is there anything else that you wanted to particularly add about either the film or what we're scratching at thematically here? No, other than I was just trying to quote. Oh, yep, that's it. So you before before the internet <laughs> or you follow up and correct me here. I actually was not trying to quote the golden rule. I was just trying to quote "love your neighbor as yourself." Um, mm. 
<laughs> you know, so I was actually trying to quote scripture and instead quoted the golden rule. So I'm self-correcting everybody. Huh. I'm self-correcting. Um, so no, I mean, I think like, if not for how horrific the movie is, I think the thing would be a very appropriate uh, conversation starter for people of faith. <laughs> but, uh, oh, absolutely. Fair warning. If you decide to go that route, you will, you, you might need a, you might need a bucket, <laughs> a bucket and a comfort blankie. Uh, yeah. Especially if, if you've seen the thing or if you resonate with any of these themes that we're sort of talking about, whether or not you've seen the movie, um, as we say, every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. Um, so let us know what you think about this. We're obviously very passionate about some of the things that we've expressed here, and we want to know what what you think about all of that and give you your voice to do that. And there's several places that you can do that. You can follow us on Twitter. Nathan, what's our Twitter handle? Uh, at the fear of God. And you can like us on Facebook. There's a link to that on Twitter. Uh, you can also email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow me directly on Twitter, at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides Fear of God? Uh, at the Nathan Rouse. So we would absolutely love it if you would keep this conversation going with us. And uh, next week, we are going to bring this carpenter profile home we're going to wrap it up the only way that we possibly could wrap up a conversation about john carpenter next week we're going to be doing a deep dive into his landmark film uh still my favorite of his movies and arguably one of the best he's ever made uh we're going to be talking about not only the the most recent decade of his career but the legendary film halloween so uh come join us for that next week and uh, nathan as always thanks so much for having this conversation with me Likewise, my friend. We'll talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.